music is In the Hall of the Mountain King from the Peregrine Suite by Edvard Grieg, performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra and published by Muse Open. This is Sam Biagetti of Historian Splaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. And this is The Vikings, Part 1, In the Norsemen's World. So I've been researching for some time for a series of lectures about the Vikings, either two or three, depending on exactly how much I get through tonight. But before I talk about the Vikings and their exploits, I wanted to first get an understanding of who the Vikings were and the world that they actually came from before they set out on their quests to pillage and plunder. Now, in theory, it seems as if the Vikings should need no introduction. They've been seen over and over again a thousand times in novels and films and operas. They've become practically iconic, even a cliché, as symbols of rough, primitive strength. A lot like the cowboys that I talked about last month, and in some ways playing a similar role as symbols of sort of raw masculinity. But the constant use and reuse of the Vikings in art and popular entertainment through the centuries has led to the accretion of popular myths and distortions, again, like with the cowboys. And even the word Viking itself has been so overused and so, so overstretched in its meanings that even academics have basically given up on trying to maintain its original technical meaning. So what is that? Viking technically is not an ethnonym. It is not, at least originally, the name for a people tied together by language or customs or common ancestry or even a common geographic region. Rather, Viking is a word for a pursuit or an activity. As some have said, it's a job title. So the people of early medieval Scandinavia were Northmen, and it appears in different dialects as Nordmen or Norsemen. And in modern Scandinavian languages, the term is Nordborn, inhabitants of the North. And the correct way to refer to the language and religion of these people of the early medieval Scandinavian world is Norse. So technically speaking, it's wrong to refer to Viking art or Viking mythology, Viking society, etc. Rather, a Viking is specifically a person who sets out by sea to explore and more specifically to raid and pillage. The original derivation of that word Viking is unclear, but it probably relates to the word vik, meaning bay along a seacoast. And hence, some scholars have theorized that Viking originally is simply a synonym for pirate. But this too is questionable, because Vikings relatively rarely attacked ships at sea. So they were not pirates in the sense that we might think of today, the classic pirates who preyed upon shipping around the Caribbean. But much more often, Vikings landed and plundered towns and settlements on land, sometimes far inland. They were, you could say, the elite amphibious attack troops of the Middle Ages. And they could raid and attack and invade in this way because their ships were specially designed to navigate coastal inlets and rivers. And hence, it's much more likely, I would argue, that their name Viking derives from their ability to enter into coastal bays and land. So Norsemen is a word for the people or inhabitants of the northern end of Europe, 
whereas Vikings were specifically these people who went out raiding. Now, it's understandable that often people confuse these terms in these categories, like Norse and Vikings, because the main way that other people around Europe encountered Norsemen through the early Middle Ages was as raiders, you know, at the receiving end of a sword or a mace. And the main thing that distinguished them and that people remembered and recorded about the Norse was the mayhem and destruction that they rained down. And that is still the main theme of the written sources and of this enduring popular memory of the Norsemen. Also, in fairness, it is true that for several hundred years, going out on the sea and raiding became a crucial, even central, pillar of Norse civilization. And to the Norsemen themselves, a great deal of status, power, and wealth hinged on who went out and plundered what and where. And this Viking activity began initially from small-scale local raiding among Norse tribes and clans within Scandinavia. But over the course of the 700s, they began to cross out from Scandinavia to explore and attack and pillage the rest of Europe. And this activity peaked in the 800s and 900s and then slowly diminished over the course of the 1000s until it was basically over by about 1100. And hence one can speak of a high Viking age of about 300 years, roughly from the mid-700s to the mid-1000s, when this was you might say, the definitive pursuit of Norse civilization. Now, you probably know that these Vikings were, for a time, the terror of Europe, all the way from Ireland to Russia. And they're often perceived as simply greedy, bloodthirsty barbarians and thieves, naturally enough. But in recent times, within about the past 40 years, the Vikings have gotten some more serious treatment and examination by scholars. They're taken more seriously because of their sophisticated technology, their complex art, and especially literature, which was among the most prolific and creative in Europe in that era, and also for the important impact that they had in creating new contacts and links all across Europe and even into Eurasia, founding new cities and in some cases whole new societies from Ukraine to Normandy to Iceland and Greenland, and hence having a sweeping, broad, civilizational impact all around what was then known as Christendom, despite themselves being pagans or heathens in the view of Christians. And hence, if we're going to talk about the Vikings and understand them historically, we have to look back at the complex, multi-layered civilization that they came out of, the civilization of Scandinavia in the early Christian era, or the North, as they usually called it. So what I want to try to get across here is the dynamics and the self-understanding of the Norsemen in their world and how they place themselves in it. So that's what I'm going to try to do in this first lecture before I then talk about their journeys, their explorations, and their exploits of raiding and conquest. So how can one begin to explain and understand and reconstruct this world of the Norsemen? Well, there's a fairly obvious and straightforward place to begin. It centers on a tree, namely Yggdrasil, the world tree, the axis of the cosmos. 
And it only makes sense that in the eyes of the Norsemen, the center of their universe was this great tree. Scandinavia is heavily forested. The Norse people, it seems, practiced worship and divination in sacred groves. Their entire built world, their homes, their barns, their bridges, and temples were all built completely from timber. The ships that they used to trade, explore, and plunder were made from wood taken from whole tree trunks. And according to the records of their myths, they even believed that the first humans themselves were created from tree trunks. Now, Yggdrasil, this world tree, was believed to be an enormous ash tree with three roots reaching down into deep wells in the underworld. The branches of the tree reached upward into the airy realms and the heavens. This tree was evergreen. It was constantly fed upon by creatures and monsters of various sorts, but it always healed and regenerated itself. Arranged around the roots of the tree, the trunk, and the branches are the nine cosmic realms, the homes of various gods, monsters, and men. The Norse creation myth is highly complex, and it is described, albeit in a somewhat vague and confusing way, in two books called the Eddas, which are collections of traditional Norse poetry that were collected and written down in the 1200s. And the story, the cosmogony of the Norse world, begins with chaos, as many creation myths do, with the so-called yawning void, or ginanga gap, in which all the elements of creation were confused in violent disorder. But gradually the elements began to gather and congeal into distinct realms around the different parts of the great tree. The first two to form were Niflheim, a cold world of water, ice, and mist. And secondly, Muspel, a world of fire. The first creatures appeared because an ice shelf extended out of Niflheim as the cold waters of that world flowed out into the gaping void. They froze into a great ice shelf, which then extended, and as it came near to the fires of Muspel, it received the spark of life and it came to life in the form of an ice giant called Ymir. Ymir then gave birth to an entire race of giants who are called the Jotuns. They are brutish and voracious in appetite. They lived off of the milk from the primordial first cow called Althumbla. And then, somewhat later, smaller, delicate frost crystals began to come to life, and the first of them became the first god called Buri. Buri then begat a race of gods alongside the giants, and his offspring included Odin, who later became the great leader of the gods, and his two brothers named Vili and Ve. These three brothers joined together and killed the frost giant Ymir. His blood flooded the ice world, killing most of the giants. The three brothers then banished the remaining giants to a faraway realm. They took Ymir's body out into the Ginunga Gap, and they fashioned the pieces of it into a new realm. They made the earth from Ymir's flesh, the rocks from his bones and teeth. From his blood they made sea, lakes, and oceans. They surrounded the earth's lands with a great encircling sea. From Ymir's skull they made the sky, which they suspended above the earth, held up at its four corners, 
the north, south, east, and west, by dwarves. They took sparks of fire from Muspel and scattered them within this dome, giving rise to the stars. And finally, they took Ymir's eyebrows and eyelashes and wove them into a great fortifying rope or chain, which they then ran around the earth, encircling it to guard it against the hostile and vengeful giants whom they had banished. And hence, this new realm that they created was called Midgard, meaning the middle enclosure. And finally, they took two tree trunks that washed up on the seashore in this new earth, and they animated them into the first man and woman, who were called Ask and Embla. Ask means ash tree, seeming to echo the great cosmic tree Yggdrasil. The name of the first woman, Embla, is of unclear meaning, but it might derive from the word for elm, and hence each of these first humans, the man and the woman, were each created from a strong, durable wood, one of them the ash being exceptionally rigid, and the other the elm being soft and supple. And so according to this creation myth, humans themselves were made from trees, and furthermore were made by the gods to inhabit a realm that had been created through violence, but that was specially guarded from these hostile and chaotic forces. As for the other six realms that are arranged around the axis of the great tree, there are firstly three lower worlds. These are Jotunheim, the home of the giants, which is depicted as a world of frozen mountains and forests. There is Hel, a cold, misty underworld that is the fate of some spirits in the afterlife. There is Nidavellir, the realm of dwarves, who are the master craftsmen of the cosmos. And Nidavellir is a moon world comprising mines, tunnels, and underground forges and workshops. Above these, there are then two higher, more heavenly worlds, suspended further up the trunk of the great tree. And these are Elfheim, the world of the elves, which is a bright, vibrant forest world governed by the goddess Freya, who is associated with prophecy and divination. And then there is Vanaheim, which is a mysterious world that is not described in any detail in any of the surviving poems, but which is known to be the original birthplace of a clan of gods called the Vanir. And this family of gods, the Vanir, includes Freya as well as her brother Freyr, who is associated with love, sex, fertility, and prosperity. And then finally, Suspended high up in the branches of the great tree, there is the highest realm of all, Asgard, the home of the high gods, another clan of gods called the Esir. Asgard is described as a shining golden castle or fortress, with halls where the various deities host great gatherings. Each of the Esir, these mythic gods who have their seat in Asgard, each one has different stories and associations but they are not straightforward personifications of natural forces, like one might describe, say, the Greek goddess Aphrodite as a personification of love. These Norse gods are much more complicated and ambiguous. They include the aforementioned Odin, 
the god associated with rulership, authority, wisdom, and language. He's called upon to give inspiration to poets, and he's said to know the secret meanings of the runes. Then there is Thor, the god associated with strength and power, and with the weather. He's a hurler of lightning and thunderbolts. He is invoked for power in battle and for rain and good winds. There is the goddess Frigg, the wife of Odin, who is associated with marriage and the family. And there is, perhaps the most strange and ambiguous of all, Loki, a trickster god associated with cleverness, but also who begets fearsome beasts like the cosmic serpent and the giant wolf Fenrir. So it's significant that these two groups of gods, the Aesir and the Vanir, are distinct and seem to have different qualities. The Vanir are associated with prosperity and abundance rooted somehow in nature, as opposed to the Aesir, who are associated with human power and creativity, embodied in language and in military might, hence they live in a castle. But nonetheless, these two clans of gods are linked and bound together. According to the surviving mythic poems in the Eddas, which are quite unclear and disjointed, It seems that at some point in the past, there was a war between these two families of gods. So Freya, the great goddess of the Vanir, seems to have gone in disguise into Asgard and taught the Aesir gods divination. But the Aesir unmasked her, and they tried to kill her repeatedly by burning, but she continually survived and rose from the ashes. This attempt to kill Freya sparked a long war with much destruction between the two groups of gods, and this war ended finally with a truce and the exchange of hostages between the two groups. And so the two clans came to be partly incorporated. And hence the Vanir could at times appear in Asgard and exercise the privileges of membership in the Aesir. Now there's been a great deal of speculation and theorization about the meaning of this myth of the Aesir-Vanir war. Perhaps it might reflect the existence of two earlier very ancient pantheons of gods, which had previously been separate, perhaps one of them Indo-European and the other pre-Indo-European, maybe belonging to some earlier indigenous people in Scandinavia before the arrival of Indo-Europeans. And after coming into conflict, these two groups of gods were then integrated. That might perhaps be the case. But the fact that the story was passed on and developed in this form suggests that it symbolized something more immediate, more relevant to the Norse people. Perhaps these two families of gods represent different aspects or parts of society, perhaps women and men. The Vanir seem to be more associated with fertility and the Aesir more with rulership and warfare. Perhaps they represent different classes or modes of society, perhaps farming as opposed to war and raiding. But none of these schematic explanations quite seem to work. There's no definite pattern in the gender of the gods. Both groups include both male and female deities. And both seem to have been revered and venerated in Scandinavia by both men and women. And when it comes to agriculture and warfare, some important gods, such as Thor, were important to both and could be invoked for strength in battle as well as for rain for the crops. So there's no clear, easy way to delineate what these two groups represent. But another possibility is that they might stand for conflicting forces or impulses, 
within Norse society, even within individual personalities in the Norse world, conflicts between the warlike and the peaceable, the desire to achieve wealth and power through force or through cultivation. And the two probably existed always in tension throughout the Viking Age. Scandinavia is a fertile, abundant, and rich land, both in terms of farmland and mineral resources. But it could also be violent and unstable, especially in times of scarcity. Now, having said this much, some of you probably can see some points of comparison to other mythologies. The story of the destruction of the frost giant Ymir and the use of his body parts to create the world that they called Midgard is remarkably reminiscent, for instance, of the story of the cosmic man, Panku, who is spoken of in early Chinese myths. There are also many other stories from other mythologies about wars and overthrows between two contending groups of gods, such as the Titans who were overthrown by the Olympians in Greek mythology. There's also the existence of these various afterlife realms, which can sound similar to Hades or the Elysian Fields. But in a number of ways, this Norse mythology that is captured in the Eddas is more frightening than any of these. There is a great emphasis on the power and threat of enemies like the giants or the vicious creatures created by Loki. Humans appear as very minor figures and emerge almost as an afterthought, not as the great pinnacle of creation. And specifically Midgard, the human realm of the earth and the seas, is presented as small and dwarfed and encircled by other frighteningly large and mysterious realms. There's a great emphasis on vulnerability, vulnerability to enemies, to frightening inscrutable forces of heat and cold and water. And there is pervading this mythology a sense of fear and inescapable destiny. An emphasis on the warlike power of gods can be seen in this light as an expression of insecurity, of the need for human beings for constant protection and support against hostile forces. And this pervasive atmosphere of danger is summed up by the myth of Ragnarok. So the Eddas contain elaborate prophecies about the foreordained end of the world. And this aspect of the Eddas is extremely complex and detailed, and I cannot go through it in this lecture. But just in brief, this prophesied future apocalypse begins first with a breakdown in the human world, with social decay, loss of norms of honor, the breakdown of law and authority, which then is followed by a natural decay, represented by a long, deep winter lasting for three years with no summer, and the sun going dim as food runs out. A passage of this prophecy in the poetic Edda says, quote, Brothers will fight and kill each other. Sisters' children will defile kinship. It is harsh in the world, whoredom rife, an axe age, a sword age, shields are riven, a wind age, a wolf age, before the world goes headlong. No man will have mercy on another. 
So this disorder and perversion of the world that begins in Midgard then spreads out to the other realms. It is said that Yggdrasil shudders and groans, the cosmic serpent thrashes agitating the great seas, and the giants in their realm awaken, take up arms, and board a ship on the enormous waves, which then crash through the gates into Midgard. The giants are then joined by the enormous serpents and wolves who are the offspring of Loki. The watchman of Asgard, Heimdall, sounds the great horn of alarm. The Aesir rally to defend both Midgard and Asgard from this invasion. Odin fights the giant wolf Fenrir, but is defeated and devoured. The other giant wolves swallow the sun and moon. The sky goes black. Thor fights the giant serpent and defeats it, but then dies later from its poisonous bite. The earth sinks down into the sea. Only clouds and steam are left rising into the heavens. The surviving gods later regather to pick up the pieces and to make sense from what has happened. And eventually a new earth begins to rise again out of the sea. Trees, birds, and fish return. And it's implied at least possibly, that the cycle begins again with a new creation. So the story of Ragnarok, at least in the poetic Edda, ends with a possible final note of hope. But nonetheless, the overall story is dark and fatalistic. In some, it is a tragic mythology. And one is forced to ask why. There are, of course, possible obvious geographic reasons the overall precarity of life in the far north, the need for good crops in summer to survive the winter, the fact that prosperity was possible at least under certain conditions, but was still delicate and dependent on the whims of the weather and the seasons. One could say that the description of the ice and fire realms reflect the nearness of the Arctic, and also possibly of volcanoes, as were seen in Iceland and in islands to the north in the Arctic Sea. But many other peoples in the world have lived in harsh conditions, arguably when it comes to storms and diseases more harsh than what the people in Scandinavia faced. So geography may not be enough to explain what has happened here. And there is a theory of a historical reason for the particular shape of Norse mythology, and specifically the idea of Ragnarok. And this theory holds that the mythology is rooted in the disastrous disruption of life that took place in Scandinavia in the 500s, just shortly before the beginning of the Viking Age. So recent archaeology has shown that during the Roman era, Scandinavia was heavily farmed and fairly well populated, with many large farms and settlements based around longhouses, very long dwelling houses that housed large groups or tribes of people, and with sections set off for humans and for livestock to share heat. But by the mid-500s, something had changed dramatically. There was a large drop in population, maybe as much as 50%, with abandonment of many farmsteads and whole villages, and in some places, such as on the island of Gotland, almost the entire population disappeared. The reasons for this catastrophe are unclear, but the current theory is that it stemmed from a series of enormous volcanic eruptions in the 530s and 40s. The first one 
which took place in El Salvador in the Americas in 539, was probably the largest volcanic eruption ever in human history, and it was followed a few years later by at least one more, maybe two more, almost as big. And these eruptions led to massive dust clouds that circled the earth and dimmed the sun, stunting tree growth and killing many crops. Famines were recorded in China and India, and also the cold weather from this diminished sunlight probably also contributed to the outbreak of bubonic plague in the Mediterranean, what has been called Justinian's Plague. And I've mentioned this rolling disaster before in some other lectures briefly. It is possibly linked to the legend or myth of the fall of King Arthur and the destruction of Camelot, which some medieval chronicles dated specifically to this time in the 530s. And there are other documented political and social upheavals in other places in the world, like wars and revolts. Now, it stands to reason that the impact of this climate event would have been especially severe in the far north, because, as I said, there is a great deal of fertile land in Scandinavia, but with a very short growing season, and the sunlight in summer is crucial. So during this event, probably crops and natural food sources were both devastated, even down to the animals and fish yields in the seas. And this would have caused widespread famine, instability, and probably fighting over dwindling resources. So some scholars such as Neil Price have argued that the description of the mythic Ragnarok may reflect memory of this time of catastrophe and rupture, especially the references to the dimming sun and the long winter. Now, by extension, in relation to this argument, the story of the world re-emerging and beginning to renew after Ragnarok might also be an echo of the restabilization of society in Scandinavia after the aftermath of this disaster in the 600s and 700s. But nonetheless, despite this recovery, it seems that this event arguably left an imprint. The new Norse society that re-emerged was highly militarized with warrior elites and a new sense of vigilance against enemies and against the unpredictable and inscrutable forces of nature. Now, one last detail of this cosmic mythology that I've just described, that some have pointed out and that stands out as significant for understanding the Viking Age, is a detail about the names of the nine cosmic realms that exist around the great cosmic tree. So most of these realms that I mentioned contain the word Haim at the end, which is basically a word for place or dwelling. It's basically a neutral word. Only two of the realms, instead of Haim, are called Gard, and those, of course, are Midgard and Asgard, the world of men and the world of the high gods. This suffix Gard comes from the ancient Indo-European root, meaning enclosure, and this is also the root of our English word garden, which originally just means a fenced enclosure that is cultivated. It is also the root of the word court, meaning an enclosed place of order, law, and authority. So both the Aesir and the humans, who in many ways reflect and resemble one another, live in such enclosed realms, 
whereas the Vanir, the gods associated with fertility, are apparently from a more wild, open, and mysterious realm called Vanaheim, much as the dwarves and the elves and the giants and these other strange beings also live in their realms called Haim. So Midgard and Asgard stand out as different, and the Aesir, the ruler gods, are said to abide in a shining castle, and the safety of this castle is symbolized by an enclosing wall or chain. Midgard is a lower reflection of Asgard. It is also an enclosure surrounded by a great fence. And much like if we picture a garden with a fence around it set among woods or thicket, likewise Midgard is also surrounded by more wild and mysterious places, some of which threaten it. And hence this cosmology reflects the mentality and even the way of life of the Norse people, their perception of themselves. They lived overwhelmingly in small farmsteads with houses and barns set among cleared fields surrounded by fences. The villages in which some of them lived were simply clusters of these farmsteads with their fences conjoined together. The larger towns in Scandinavia were very few, but they were surrounded by great earthwork walls and wooden palisades, and their harbors likewise were enclosed with earthworks and pilings. Sometimes even entire realms or kingdoms were bounded and set off from the outside world by earthwork walls, and their houses of worship and gathering places also were probably enclosed with symbolic defensive chains like Asgard. For instance, the temple at Uppsala was reportedly encircled by an enormous golden chain. So hence the mythology of the creation and destruction of the world or of the cosmos represents the self-image of farmers subsisting in a largely wild and wooded landscape and their struggle to protect footholds of human life and civilization against the wilderness. And even more broadly, you could say the natural attitude of Norse people towards the wider world, beyond their own local village or settlement, and even beyond Scandinavia, their attitude to this wider world was one of wonder and curiosity, but also fear, a constant awareness of danger, from outside the home. And the Viking Age, I would argue, is really defined by this mixture of terror and desire. Okay, so coming from myth to the factual, documented world, the real world, in quotation marks, what was this landscape in which the Norse people lived and survived? Well, they lived basically in a cluster of countries in far northern Europe, which we today collectively call Scandinavia, but which then was usually simply called the North. And these are rugged lands which had been covered in glaciers and hence had a very complex, fractured landscape with many lakes, fjords, and islands. Being in the far north, Scandinavia experiences dramatic changes among the seasons, with relatively mild summers and very deep winters. The natural vegetation is mainly evergreen forests, with also some plains and marshes. Now, to begin from the south, closer to the main body of Europe, and work our way northward, we begin with Denmark. 
The main body of Denmark is a small, flat peninsula that extends northward from Germany, and which is called Jutland, after an ancient tribe, the Utes. And Jutland separates the North Sea from a sea channel called the Kattegat, or the Cat's Gate, which then in turn leads into the Baltic Sea. And to the east of Jutland, there is an archipelago of islands of various sizes, the largest of which is called Zeeland. Now, if one continues then to the north or east and crosses these sea channels, one reaches then the Scandinavian Peninsula, which is a much larger body running all the way from the Kattegat near Denmark all the way up to the Arctic Circle and close to the North Pole. The eastern side of this Scandinavian peninsula is Sweden. Sweden is mostly low and flat, much like Denmark, and it has hilly forested lands in the south, in the regions traditionally called Skena and Götaland. Then north of that, there are large lowlands with many plains, marshes, and very many lakes and rivers with islands in them. And this region was traditionally called Sviera, after the Svier tribe which is where Sweden originally gets its name from. Then further north beyond this region, there is a subarctic area of hills and forests. Now, west of Sweden, running along the western side of the Scandinavian peninsula, is Norway, the name of which originally just means the northward path. And Norway is much more mountainous and rugged, with many snow-capped mountains and glaciers, as well as a complex coastline very jagged and cut into by long, narrow fjords. And at the heads of these fjords, there are many deep, flat valleys, which are suitable for farming. Now, if one continues westward off into the Atlantic Ocean, there is also Iceland, which comes into the picture towards the end of the Viking Age. And Iceland is a rugged, volcanic island with some valleys and grassy plains. It was uninhabited in ancient times. The first known people to land there were Irish anchorite monks who had set out onto the sea with no destination and landed on Iceland by chance. But then, shortly after, Iceland was colonized in the late 900s by Norsemen migrating from Norway. And Iceland becomes in time a fertile ground for Norse life and especially literature. And hence, if one wants to reconstruct the history of the Viking Age, one often has to look for the story in Iceland. Now, all in all, looking at Scandinavia as a whole, it is mostly made up of peninsulas. And these peninsulas are connected to the rest of Europe by land links. But nonetheless, the northern link at the top of the Scandinavian peninsula is in the subarctic, and hence is very remote from the centers of European civilization. And then south of that, there is Jutland, which connects directly by land to Germany, but it's a very narrow isthmus and easily defended. And it's not surprising that starting very early on, as early as the 600s, some of the Danes, the Norse inhabitants of Denmark, began building a series of defensive walls and trenches across this isthmus, which they called the Danavirka. So all in all, considering the geography, the climate, the shape of the land and the seas, it is not surprising that the region has historically been fairly isolated from the rest of Europe. It retains its own distinct languages, customs, and religion for much longer than most of mainland Europe. 
and in fact Scandinavia was the last part of Europe to Christianize except for some of the Baltic countries on the eastern side of the Baltic Sea. So if the landscape of Scandinavia is so rugged and so harsh in so many ways, how did people in these countries survive and subsist? Well, it was in large part by farming. They farmed some wheat in places where there was warm enough weather and sunlight, but mostly they cultivated cold-hardy grains like barley, oats, and rye, as well as other crops like beans, peas, and various vegetables. They also raised a great deal of livestock, such as pigs and fowls, including chickens, ducks, and geese. Cattle were also very important in certain areas, such as in rocky terrain that was too difficult to plow. They did gathering of wild foods, such as honey, and also a good deal of hunting, especially in the far north. And in some places, especially coastal Norway, sea fishing was very important as well as also freshwater fishing, mainly in the lakes and rivers in Sweden. Now, who were the Norse in terms of language and ancestry? Well, the people of all three Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, were all Norse since very ancient times, as far as recorded history can find. So the Norse people are Indo-European and specifically Germanic in ancestry. They were at the far northern fringe of the Indo-European realm, and they sometimes encountered other groups, including a non-Indo-European people called the Sami, who lived in the Arctic, especially above the Arctic Circle. And the Sami had their own distinct language and traditions. They were clearly distinct from the Norse, but there was also a great deal of intermixing, especially in the sub-Arctic area. There also was some intermixing and intermingling with Germans and Slavs, especially along the shores of the Baltic. Their language belonged to its own distinct North Germanic branch of the Indo-European language family. The language that they spoke, we call it today Old Norse, because it is the ancestor of various modern-day languages. But at the time, it was generally simply called the Danish tongue. And this may seem strange because only some of the Norse people were Danes. But it made sense because Norse people, by and large, spoke the same language. Despite some different dialects and local accents, it was basically mutually comprehensible all around Scandinavia. And hence, most of the time, they didn't have to refer to their language. It wasn't a matter that needed to be discussed or negotiated. They only had to refer to it when dealing with foreigners who didn't speak the same language, such as Germans or Slavs or Frisians. And the Danes had by far the most extensive interaction with outsiders, with non-Scandinavians. And so in those contexts, it simply seemed to make the most sense to refer to this as the Danish tongue. Now, as I said, despite some variations in dialect, the language was remarkably consistent. People from all around Scandinavia could converse and communicate, and remarkably, that is even still mostly true today. If one puts together a Norwegian, a Swede, a Dane, they can all basically understand each other and get on. So despite some divergence over time, the modern Scandinavian languages are still extremely close to one another, and they are still extremely close to Old Norse, to the degree that if one transcribes ancient runic inscriptions from a Viking settlement and puts them into a Latin alphabet, modern-day Scandinavians can usually understand them. 
And this amazing degree of consistency, both across geography and across time, is probably largely due to the very strong poetic tradition, which has been passed down through the centuries and includes memorizing verse. Now, if Norse people had this remarkable consistency in their shared language, it raises the question, did they have a collective identity or an ethnic self-awareness? Well, it doesn't seem so for the most part. Overwhelmingly, Norse people identified themselves in local terms as members of a particular clan or village or regional tribe, like the Goethes or the Svier. They had no collective ethnonym apart from simply Norsemen or some variation on Norse folk, which is a regional geographic identity, not an ancestral or racial identity. But nonetheless, that regional identity, it does seem, was pretty strong. They saw themselves as having certain special qualities, setting them apart from foreigners. And they saw the North as a distinctive social space, a world unto itself bounded by the seas and by political and even physical borders, again, like the Danavirka defending the southern end of Denmark. So how did their society or their civilization work? Well, it's very complicated and tricky to try to reconstruct the Norse world in terms of society and institutions. And this is because the sources are very ambiguous and fragmentary. Although it's not hard to translate and identify the words, the lexicon, nonetheless, the content is very scattered with tremendous gaps. So first and foremost, a lot of the reconstruction of Norse society has to come from archaeology. And there are many important and revealing archaeological finds from the Viking Age, although they tend to skew very much towards the wealthy elite. So these are mainly hoards with buried gold artifacts and then from later years also coins. Also elaborate burials like the famous ship burials that have been found in Norway and also village cemeteries that are scattered around all the different Scandinavian countries. As for the buildings, these were overwhelmingly built in timber, and all of them are long gone, have not survived. But nonetheless, some information about the buildings can be gleaned from excavations, especially identifying the post holes where timber was planted in the ground. And in recent years, again, knowledge of the Norse world has been growing due to greatly improving archaeological technology. And specifically when it comes to Scandinavia, the most relevant improvements have been ground-penetrating radar, which is very powerful in finding the sites of buildings, villages, and fortifications that no longer appear on the surface of the earth, dendrochronology, which allows for the dating of wood remains that might have been preserved, like in lakes and springs, and metal detecting, which facilitates the location of buried hordes and grave sites. Now, when it comes to documentary records that give us information about the Norse people in the Viking Age, there are basically five kinds of surviving documents. The first, and the one that goes farthest back into the past, is the runic inscriptions. So the runes are a writing system that were invented in Scandinavia, it seems in the 100s AD, probably inspired by Roman writing. Viking Age runes were slightly different from that original invention. They had been simplified and were written with a simple 16-character alphabet 
called the Futhark, after the first five characters in this alphabet. The runes are very simple, angular characters based on vertical stems and then diagonal crossbars added to those stems in various configurations. The runes were designed to be easy to carve into wood, basically cutting against the grain and making a clear, distinct mark in the wood. And wood was the most commonly used medium for recording runes. Paper was completely unknown in the Viking Age, and parchment was very rare and expensive, whereas wood was everywhere. So there have been many finds of small rune sticks made of wood or sometimes also of bone. And these rune sticks have various trade accounts, instructions, diplomatic messages. And some of them occasionally also used a cipher code called Jutenvillir, which was used to encode private or personal messages. And for instance, one wooden stick that was found in Sweden had an encoded message that was found to say, kiss me. But while some of these rune sticks have been found, and it seems that, again, wood and bone were the most common media at the time, nonetheless, the most common and abundant form of surviving runes that can still be found today are in stone. So in the Viking Age, it became common to erect stones with runic inscriptions, often commemorating people, deeds, and events. Some of them were erected by major figures such as kings celebrating the accomplishments of their reigns. Others were erected by relatively ordinary people commemorating family members or friends. And they were sometimes also accompanied by a few lines of Norse verse. In later years, when large building projects became more common in Scandinavia, sometimes rune stones were erected to commemorate who had sponsored or built monumental works. And for instance, next to a paved causeway that was excavated in Sweden, a rune stone was found with the inscription, quote, Jarlabanka had these stones raised in memory of himself in his lifetime, and he made this bridge for his soul, and alone he owned the whole of Tebi, God help his soul. Now the second major type of documentary source that gives us stories and information about the Vikings is foreign accounts of their activities. So there are many documents describing the Viking raiders and also merchants in the eyes of foreigners who encountered them, such as the Irish Annals, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. There are also some direct descriptions and eyewitness accounts written by travelers, diplomats, or missionaries who went into Scandinavia or into the Viking colonies around Europe. And these foreign sources often emphasize the brutality and the barbarism of these people whom they saw as heathens. And they have, of course, shaped much of the modern image of the Norse as bloodthirsty thugs. Now, this, of course, can seem incongruous then when you consider that the next and probably really the biggest, most abundant source of information about the Norse is their poetry. There was a very strong poetic tradition in Scandinavia, and there are several kinds of surviving Norse poetry. First, there is skaldic poetry, which were poems written by public performing poets called skalds, who were often called upon to compose poems of praise or encomia for leaders, especially on public occasions like weddings, war victories, coronations, funerals. 
And the main intention of much of this poetry is to memorialize great persons and deeds, and sometimes in some cases also to deal with mythic subjects, such as the origin of the world, the gods, and prophecies, like the poems and prophecies from the Poetic Edda that I quoted earlier, talking about the origins of the universe and Ragnarok. So the next big source of Norse poetry is the Eddas. And these are two collections of Old Norse poetry, mostly originating, it seems, from the Viking Age, which were passed down for several hundred years and later written and collected into books in the 1200s. So after the end of the Viking period and after the conversion to Christianity. The first one is the Poetic Edda, which was found in a single book manuscript in Iceland and which is anonymous and contains various collected poems. And the other is the Prose Edda, which is a book or manual for poets about the art of poetry, which contains many passages and some complete poems, and which reportedly was collected and edited by a skald named Snorri Sturluson, who lived from the late 1100s to 1241. And he was originally from Iceland. He was the law speaker of the Althing or Parliament of Iceland, so he was a respected orator and statesman. He was hired by the Norwegian royal family to go to Norway and write about their history and further to advocate for the incorporation of Iceland into the kingdom of Norway. So he was in this way a controversial figure in Iceland, and he eventually died in a political fight. So Snorri Sturluson is really the most important known named Norse writer who has passed down to modern times the greatest collection of writings and information about the Norse world. Now after poetry, there is then the next type of documentary source, which is the Norse sagas. These are long narratives, mainly prose, describing great deeds, leaders, and events. They are mostly originally Icelandic. A lot of them deal with specific towns or valleys or families in Iceland and their history, often tracing them back to Norway or even further into ancient and mythic times. Some of the sagas also deal with other places around Scandinavia and go back to ancient events and to events of the Viking Age and other Scandinavian countries. Most of these are anonymous. It's not certain where many of them were composed, but probably a lot of them were also by Icelanders. It seems that sagas were first and foremost an Icelandic art form. And Snorri Sturluson, the poet and law speaker who I mentioned before, while he was serving at the Norwegian court, he compiled and edited the Heimskringla, which is a massive chronicle of the ancestors of the kings of Norway, tracing their roots through the Viking Age and back to ancient times in Sweden and ultimately all the way back even to the gods. And then lastly, the last significant source that may have some historical value is Latin chronicles, which were written by Scandinavians in the Christian Middle Ages, so even later than the Eddas and the Sagas. And these Latin chronicles may have been based in part on stories of real events, but their veracity is very unclear and uncertain. And the most significant of these probably was written by Saxo Grammaticus, a Danish clerk at the royal court of Denmark in the early 1200s, 
who wrote a chronicle in Latin called the Gesta Danorum, or Deeds of the Danes. And it's a massive Latin epic history of Denmark, inspired by the Greco-Roman classics, and also probably by English chronicles like Geoffrey of Monmouth's. This chronicle is very historically dubious, but it is famous today mainly because it contains in part the story of the mad prince Amleth, which then was the inspiration for Shakespeare's Hamlet. But putting these later Latin chronicles like the Gesta Danorum aside, there are four basic types of documents that give us evidence about the Norse world. And each of these are very uneven and incomplete in terms of what they reveal and what they exclude. They are often very ambiguous with a great deal of lost context, and their geographic scope is very uneven. Basically, each of these four types is most strongly associated with one particular country. The runic inscriptions are by far the most abundant in Sweden. About 2,000 have been found in Sweden, only about 200 in Denmark, and 50 or so in Norway. When it comes to the foreign accounts about the Norse people, they deal overwhelmingly with Denmark, which was the Scandinavian country that had the closest and most intense interactions with the rest of Europe. As far as the poetry, the skaldic poems, the Eddas, those spring mainly from Norway, and the sagas deal by far the most with Iceland. So using this very complicated, fragmentary, uneven base of evidence, one has to roughly reconstruct how Scandinavian society worked, what were its basic groupings and building blocks, its basic norms and practices. And there seems, despite the unevenness and the gaps in the sources, there seems to be a remarkable consistency all across the North. So as for the basic social groupings, out of which society emerged. There is, of course, firstly, the household, which in Scandinavia was generally small as compared to other parts of Europe. It's centered on a married couple and their immediate family members, almost always fewer than a dozen people. And they lived usually on their own independent farmstead, centering on a built compound with a dwelling house, As for the houses themselves, the typical Scandinavian house was much smaller than the ancient Scandinavian longhouse that had preceded it, but it was still relatively large by medieval European standards. So the Scandinavian house did not have just a single room, like one tended to see in places like England and France, but rather typically three rooms, and this would include a main central hall, with a central hearth surrounded by various alcoves and platforms for sitting, socializing, and sleeping, and then two gable rooms offset at either end of the hall, one an enclosed kitchen or women's workshop with an earthen oven, and at the other end what seems to be a men's workshop. And this arrangement of the house probably reflects a sort of gender symmetry or even arguably a parody between the sort of parallel worlds of men and women. So when it comes to gender, women's status in Scandinavian society was relatively strong, as often happens in very martial and warlike societies. 
And this may seem counterintuitive, but there is a sort of logic to it that if men are frequently away at war, if many of them die at war, often women, wives, daughters, mothers were left then to handle the household and the running of civil society at home and could often rise to positions of power and respect in society. Marriage in the Norse world was understood as an equal partnership uniting both two people and their families. And either party, the man or the woman, could initiate divorce. Wives customarily brought dowries into the marriage with them, with the size and richness depending on the wealth and status of their family. And they would continue to own and control this dowry property through the marriage, and they also could acquire further property of their own. Many women are specifically noted and named in runic inscriptions as important landowners or as clan matriarchs. Several women are specifically named in the surviving literature as skalds or public poets. And in some sagas and other documents, there are references to female warriors who went out fighting and raiding and who were called shield maidens. And there's been much debate about whether or not this is true or accurate, whether there really were women who went out on the war and plundering expeditions. And if there were, it was probably very few. But this story of the shield maidens has in recent times been corroborated archaeologically, such as by the excavation of the grave of what appears to be a female warrior with weapons and horses in the town of Birka in Sweden. Now, beyond the household and the married couple, there were the larger groupings of clans and tribes. And these were based on kinship and on geographic region. They were led by kin group leaders or chieftains. And in many areas, there also were higher ranking paramount chieftains and war commanders who were called jarls, which is the root of the English word earl. Now, alongside clans and tribes, there also was the phalag, which is the voluntary fellowship of men who cooperated in joint ventures such as trade and also in mutual aid and defense, basically similar to the Germanic guild that was described in mainland Europe. And specifically, there was a specific type or variety of phalag called the lith, which is the martial fellowship or warrior band that centered on a chieftain or a jarl, and that would engage together in war and raiding. So society was very militaristic and often unstable, but helping to maintain some degree of civil peace, there was also the thing, which is the local council or gathering for the debating of public matters and the settling of disputes. And there were many of these all over Scandinavia. Additionally, Norse settlers on Iceland created the so-called Althing, a supreme or general council, which evolved into the Icelandic parliament and in that form still functions today and is commonly referred to as the oldest continuously functioning parliament in the world. So Norse people were joined together by these various intersecting and cross-cutting ties of kinship, fellowship, and peacekeeping, but they were also arranged into a stratified class hierarchy. So most of the Norse people, it seems, were legally free, 
and that meant that they had the right to travel, to hold property, and significantly to speak and take part in the thing. Many of the free people were also freeholding farmers who lived on and cultivated their own land, but some of them also were poor laborers and servants without their own land, and there was, it seems, some legal stratification where the law recognized distinctions of wealth and status. For instance, there were laws requiring the payments of fines and fees as compensation for killing or injuring other people, and the fees and fines were higher depending on the status, the wealth, the rank of the person who had been injured, and whether their family were landowners. Now, while most of the people of Scandinavia, as I said, were free, also some were slaves. These slaves included captives who were taken from foreign raids and then sold in Scandinavia, as well as their children and descendants. Some also were enslaved for crimes, so they were not all necessarily foreign captives. And these slaves worked both on agricultural fields and in homes. They were subject to the power and discipline of their masters, albeit with some minor legal limits and protections. Many slaves became free over time. They could become free through earning wages and paying for their freedom, or through living in a community for a long time over several generations, after which eventually they would be recognized as free inhabitants. And this reflects the sort of lingering underlying assumption that slavery was essentially a condition of foreigners without kin. Now, as I said, society was warlike and militaristic. Warfare was fairly frequent, with many local wars and feuds, and increasingly after the 700s also raids abroad. The Norse were infantry fighters. They were not cavalrymen. They did have horses for travel and sometimes for farm work, but they were not known for their skills of horsemanship, possibly because so much travel was by sea, and transporting horses took up valuable and critical space and resources on a ship. So they fought overwhelmingly on foot. Their weaponry included, first and foremost, swords. They were accomplished swordsmen. They tended to use large, double-edged, and very finely made swords forged within Scandinavia. They also fought with other hand weapons like axes and knives, and they used chainmail armor and iron helmets. And in all of these respects, they were not that different from most other fighters around medieval Europe. The look of a Viking warrior would not have been all that dramatically different from an Anglo-Saxon or a Gaul or a Lombard. Their helmets did not have horns. This would have been highly impractical. Putting large, heavy horns on top of your helmet would have made it precarious and would have made it very easy for your enemy to unhelm you by merely grabbing or striking the horns. So they did not have horns on their helmet. But rather, there are a few surviving religious figurines of deities and also figures probably representing gods, particularly Odin, in woven tapestries. And these figures do have horned helmets. So this was a religious mythological image. It was not a depiction of actual Viking fighters. 
but this image nonetheless caught on in 19th century popular art and theater as a sort of visual code for the Vikings, and you could say as a sort of reference to their quasi-animalistic nature. But really, the, the look, the equipment of a Viking fighter was not that unusual for medieval Europe. What was distinctive about them more was tactics, Not only their seafaring and amphibious raids, but also their use of sneak attacks and their practice of berserking, a sort of ritually induced battle frenzy. So if this was the basic fabric and structure of society, how was one expected to conduct oneself in this world? What were the basic norms and ethics? Well, these were mainly, it seems, martial, norms of courage, loyalty, honor, and the keeping of oaths, also generosity and hospitality, being a good and generous host, protecting one's guests, as well as also being a good guest. There's a surviving poem from the Eddas called Havamal, which contains stanzas of advice to a man who is venturing out in the world. And it begins, quote, The man who stands at a strange threshold should be cautious before he cross it, glance this way and that. Who knows beforehand what foes may sit awaiting him in the hall? Better gear than good sense a traveler cannot carry, a more tedious burden than too much drink a traveler cannot carry. The tactful guest will take his leave early, not linger long. He starts to stink who outstays his welcome in a hall that is not his own. The codes of relations between guest and host were really fundamental, and they underpinned this image of the good, honorable, respected man. And the overarching goal of these norms, it seems, was fame. So the Norse people were just as obsessed with fame as the moderns. They just attached it to different people and different qualities for different reasons. So Norse poetry, it seems, always emphasizes that human beings and humanity itself are mortal. But nonetheless, fame lives on. There's tremendous importance placed upon the afterlife, the idea of halls, where the good, the righteous, the honored are able to gather and celebrate one another. And these halls in the afterlife most importantly include Fulvanger, the Hall of Freya, and Valhall, sometimes also called Valhalla, the Hall of Odin. And these are the sort of two highest afterlife realms where warriors are able to feast and celebrate. And the main aim of both the sagas and the skaldic poems is, of course, to celebrate great men and women, to pass on their deeds and their personal qualities to future generations. And even most of the rune stones, as I said, were erected to memorialize some person. And it's because of these that we know about many individuals by name and their, their deeds and their accomplishments, even if they're just snippets of their lives. And these rune stones were put in visible public places on roadsides and crossroads, not tucked away in cemeteries or burial sites. And while some of them talk about heroes and kings, also many of them memorialize individuals simply for being a good farmer, a good spouse, a good father or mother. And all in all, I think the evidence shows that the Norse were obsessed with this idea of immortalization through fame and honor. And another stanza of that same poem, the Havamal, sums this up, I think, by saying, quote, Cattle die, 
kindred die, every man is mortal, but the good name never dies of one who has done well. Now, as far as religious practice, as I said, Scandinavia was among the last places in Europe to accept Christianity. And rather, religion in Scandinavia, if you want to call it that, involved frequent offerings and invocations to various Norse deities, asking for prosperity, health, safety, victory in battle, and so forth. And some details about how this works can be found in the accounts of Ibn Fadlan, who was an Arab emissary from the Islamic Caliphate. And he traveled with an embassy and visited a Viking colony on the Volga in what's now Russia in the early 900s. And he describes merchants making large offerings of food and milk to what he called idols or wooden poles with carvings on them to evoke different gods. And they would bring this fresh food to ask for success in trade and then also return afterwards with further offerings as expressions of gratitude if they were successful. So it was, you could say, a propitiatory practice and also, you might say, in a sense, a transactional relationship with these deities. Also, sometimes the Norse made bigger, more elaborate collective offerings. And often this was called a blot or blood offering involving blood sacrifices. And these were held in gathering halls called hofs. And it seems that most hofs were simply the meeting halls of, of chieftains, which then could also double as temples for these blots and similar rituals. In a few places, it seems there also were larger building complexes with hofs as well as adjoining smaller buildings that may have been specifically ceremonial. So the feasting and sacrificial functions occasionally were separated. The only known large building specially dedicated to worship of the Norse deities was the monumental temple at Uppsala in Sweden. So that's a town in east-central Sweden. And we don't have much original information about it. However, the Christian chronicler Adam of Bremen in the 1000s, so writing at a time when many Scandinavians had become Christian, but there was still pagan practice in Sweden, Adam of Bremen described an enormous building with carved figures inside of the gods Thor, Odin, and Freyr. And this temple was a site of pilgrimage, where people from far and wide would come to visit the temple itself to make offerings, as well as the sacred grove of trees beside it, and a sacred well. Aside from offerings and blots, there also was a complex practice of divination, efforts to communicate with the gods and to tell the future, often by putting a special trained seer or prophet into a trance state. And many of the important Norse cosmological and mythological poems, like the poem describing Ragnarok that I quoted earlier, were delivered especially by female prophets and seers. There were very complex burial practices. These could be simple inhumation in a grave, or sometimes cremation, and sometimes both. Especially in the later Viking Age, many people, it seems, were cremated and then their ashes interred in the ground. And these funeral and burial practices were very elaborate and ceremonial. They usually involved grave goods, which could range from simply a knife for a low-status slave, 
all the way up to entire ships and troves with treasure of gold and silver and gemstones. And these large elaborate burials often included food and clothing, weapons for men, and domestic tools like cooking vessels for women, and also vehicles like carts or sledges or horses, or as I said, even entire ships, which confirms the notion that the Norse, like many other Germanic peoples, believed that the spirits of the dead had to travel using their own goods and equipment from the world of the living to an afterlife realm. Sometimes in the most elaborate burials of high-status people, human slaves or servants were also killed and buried with their masters. It's unclear exactly how or why this happened. You know, slaves were possessions like tools or vehicles, so in that sense there's a logic to it. But exactly how this played out is unclear. Now, Ibn Fadlan, the Islamic diplomat that I mentioned earlier, he describes witnessing a funeral cremation in this Viking colony on the Volga, and it included a human sacrifice. But Ibn Fadlan claims that this was a voluntary sacrifice. So in his account, the servants of a deceased chieftain were asked who among them was willing to go with the master to the afterlife. And one woman reportedly volunteered, and she was treated then with great courtesy and lived in luxury during the time period pending the funeral, as a ship was dragged onto shore and a funeral tent was erected in the ship. The tent was then loaded with food and luxury goods, and at the funeral rite itself, the slave woman entered into the tent. Warriors then followed her into the chamber and killed her, and then the ship was set on, set on fire, and the entire structure and its contents burned down in about an hour. Now, it's likely that in addition to this practice of sacrificing slaves or servants to be buried with their masters, it's likely that some human sacrifice also took place as part of worship of the gods. So Adam Bremen, that Christian chronicler I mentioned earlier, who described the temple at Uppsala, he said that it was a site of sacrifice, and that periodically, every few years, the worshippers there killed nine males of eight different species of animals, including humans, and hung all of the bodies in the sacred grove beside the temple. Now, it's not entirely certain whether this is real, and whether this second-hand account from Adam of Bremen is entirely accurate and reliable. But it does seem there may be some corroboration of this story about Uppsala. Firstly, there is a tapestry that was found in an elaborate ship burial in Oseberg in Norway, and the embroidery in this tapestry shows several men apparently hanging from the branches of a tree. So these might also be a depiction of sacrifices. And then also, earlier than Adam of Bremen, in the early 900s, a German general named Thietmar described ritual sacrifices taking place at the village of Lera in Zealand, where he says that every nine years, the villagers sacrificed 99 men. And if this is true, it probably indicates that Lera, which is sort of centrally located in this large island of Zealand in Denmark, was also a place of pilgrimage and collective sacrificial offerings. And it's also interesting that 
Adam of Bremen's account about Uppsala and Thietmar's description of Lyra both echo the number nine, like the nine realms of the cosmos. So perhaps these sacrificed people and animals were seen as somehow being offered to the powers of the different cosmic realms. Now, as for art and aesthetics, the Vikings' material world was very elaborately decorated. It seems there was intricate decoration on buildings, on clothings and tapestries, usually very highly complex ornamentation with stylized animal figures worked into patterns of vine work and scroll work. This decoration is also seen on weapons, and many of the practical iron weapons that Norse warriors carried were inlaid with horn, copper, or gold. It was also seen, it seems, on ships. So for many centuries on up through the 19th century, it was assumed that Viking ships were simply practical and utilitarian, like the cogs that were often sailed around the North Sea and the English Channel. But in more recent times, we know that this was not true. And this is because of the enormous ship burials that have been discovered at different times in Norway, principally the Oseberg ship, which was a burial ship for two wealthy women in about 820, and the Gokstad ship, which was the burial chamber for a male chieftain around 900. And these ships were not at all plain or utilitarian, but they were carved with exquisite scrolling designs and with ornamental human, animal, and deity figures, especially snakes. So they are striking and beautiful as well as fearsome and frightening. And one might question whether these were in fact real sailing ships or simply ornamental ships created for the purpose of burial. But you'll remember Ibn Fadlan in his description of a funeral on the Volga, he claims that the ship used as the funeral pyre was a real sailing ship that was dragged up from the river onto shore. So there is reason to suspect that this is in fact what Viking ships looked like when they set out on their voyages of exploration and plunder. And to focus in on the people themselves, the clothing and personal adornment, it's important to know about this with regard to the Norse because they were apparently known to take great pride in their personal appearance. Observers of the Norse noted their very well-made clothes, which they frequently changed, and their elaborate jewelry. They dressed, naturally enough, in many layers. Men wore undergarments and trousers and tunics over them, often with embroidered hems and borders. Women wore undergarments like shifts and then overdresses over top of them, which they wrapped around the body and then held up by shoulder straps over the shoulder, that were fastened onto the overdress with large oval brooches. And these brooches have been found around Scandinavia in many different styles and a range of materials, from simple metals to bronze to silver and gold. Their clothing fabrics were most often wool, which was locally produced, durable, and warm. But there also were lighter garments made in linen or sometimes in imported silk, and heavier garments made from furs. And as for their bathing and grooming, the Norse were known especially for full, carefully trimmed beards and mustaches. Norsemen were known for their full and carefully trimmed beards and mustaches. An Arab visitor to the Norse town of Hedeby said that both men and women used eye makeup. 
And it seems that Norse people put a great deal of care and attention into their hair. Women wore long hair tied into elaborate knots and buns. Men used many different hairstyles, including often long hair in the front, while shaving the hair on the back of the head in order to show off the neck. You could see it as a kind of reverse mullet. Foreigners often complained about the Norsemen being too vain or too appealing to women. And for instance, a medieval English chronicle from the Abbey of St. Albans described the battles and conflicts between Danes and Anglo-Saxons in England. And the chronicle famously complained, quote, The Danes made themselves too acceptable to English women by their elegant manners and their care of their person. They combed their hair every day, bathed every Saturday, and even changed their garments often. They set off their persons by many such frivolous devices. In this manner, they laid siege to the virtue of the married women and persuaded the daughters, even of the nobles, to be their concubines, end quote. So this chronicle is from many years later. It was not a direct eyewitness account, and it may be half-joking. But nonetheless, it is clear that the Norse people did customarily bathe every Saturday. And this fact is confirmed for one thing in their names for the days of the week. So their days of the week were patterned on the Roman week. So it begins with Sunandag, which is simply Sunday, the day of the sun, then Manandag for the moon, like Monday. Tuesdag is Tuesday, based on the Norse god Tur. Then Wednesday is Odinsdag for Odin. Then Thorsdag for Thursday, named after Thor, who is a god of thunder, similar to the Roman god Jupiter. Friday is Friadag, named after Frigg a goddess associated with love in the family, similar to the Roman Venus. But then Saturday was not named after any god or celestial body. Rather, it was called Laugardag, Laugar being the Norse word for a hot spring where people would go to bathe. So the bathing on Saturdays was very fundamental to their lifestyle. It probably was ritual and ceremonial and most likely involved more extensive grooming beyond just bathing. So from the point of view of Western Europeans, the Scandinavians were remarkably meticulous about cleaning and grooming themselves. But the picture is different from the Eastern point of view. There's more ambivalence because the Islamic East in particular had much higher standards of cleanliness than Europeans did. And there's a very famous description of the Vikings, again, from the travel account of Ibn Fadlan, So in his description of the Vikings on the Volga from the 920s, he describes on the one hand the very impressive personal appearance of the Norsemen, and he wrote, quote, I have seen the Rus as they came on their merchant journeys and encamped by the Volga. I have never seen more perfect physical specimens, tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy. Each man has an axe, a sword, and a knife, and keeps each by him at all times. The swords are broad and grooved, of the Frankish sort. Every man is tattooed from fingernails to neck with dark green or dark blue trees, figures, etc. Each woman wears on either breast a brooch of iron, silver, copper, or gold. The value of the brooch indicates the wealth of the husband. Each brooch has a ring from which depends a knife. The women wear neck rings of gold and silver, one for each 10,000 dirhams which her husband is worth. Some women have many. End quote. But then, on the other hand, when Ibn Fadlan comes to their customs of bathing and cleanliness, 
the picture is not so appealing. And he writes, quote, They are the filthiest of God's creatures. They have no modesty in defecation and urination, nor do they wash after pollution from orgasm, nor do they wash their hands after eating. They are like wild donkeys. Every day they must wash their faces and heads, and they do in the dirtiest and filthiest fashion possible. To wit, every morning a girl servant brings a great basin of water. She offers this to her master, and he washes his hands and face and his hair. He washes it and combs it out with a comb in the water. Then he blows his nose and spits into the basin. When he is finished, the servant carries the basin to the next person, who does likewise. She carries the basin thus to all the household in turn, and each blows his nose, spits, and washes his face and hair in it. End quote. So you might see a tension here, or even a contradiction, between the Western and Eastern views of the Vikings and their personal habits. And you can see here clearly, especially in Ibn Fadlan's account, a clash of standards of purity and disgust. Clearly, this whole scene and this whole process sounds incredibly gross to us, as it would to a Muslim or an Arab that Ibn Fadlan was writing for. But nonetheless, in the Vikings' defense, we should note some things. For one thing, they came from a cold climate with very few diseases. There are no known epidemics to have broken out in the Viking Age. Scandinavia had no cities or even very large towns and no crowd diseases. And so it was not arguably as much of a threat for them to share germs through bodily fluids as it would be for people from other parts of Europe or the Mediterranean or the Middle East. And hence, the sense of disgust that we feel at the idea of spit and mucus being circulated around a household is culturally specific. And furthermore, it seems that, again, the main point of this sort of morning ablution ritual was grooming for personal appearance, not for health. Now, as we heard, Ibn Fadlan was also very impressed by the wealth and the opulence of this Viking colony on the Volga. That was a mercantile colony, so that makes some sense. But it does seem that over the course of the Viking Age, society back in Scandinavia also grew quite wealthy. And it wasn't just through raiding and pillaging. There was a successful exploitation also of trade. So how did trade and commerce work to build up the wealth of the Norse people. Well, Scandinavia, as I said, is a very rugged terrain, but trade and travel could be carried out by sea along the coasts and also over land by rivers, lakes, roads, and footpaths. This sort of travel was relatively difficult in summer due to mud and flooding rivers from meltwaters, and also just the dense forests and rocky terrain were very difficult to cross. And this was especially challenging, it seems, in Sweden. Even though Sweden was flat, it was cut through by dense forests, lakes, and marshes. So travel around Scandinavia, including in Sweden, was actually much easier in the winter, which sounds counterintuitive. But in the winters, the lakes and rivers froze, and the rocky terrain was covered over with snow, which then could be crossed fairly easily with sledges, skis, and on some surfaces even skates. So important goods like animal hides or fish could be traded and exchanged around Scandinavia, and then on the sea lanes they also could then export and gain foreign goods. 
So what sort of goods could be exported from the Norse countries? Well, there was the obvious wool and animal hides. Also iron. There were large sources of iron that were mined and exploited in both Sweden and Norway. And even still today, Sweden is one of the major iron suppliers of the world. There also were special varieties of stone which could be valuable, such as slate, which was often made into whetstones for export, soapstone, which was made into cooking vessels, and rock crystal, which could be carved for religious jewels and sculptures and for drinking vessels. There also were very valuable export materials obtained by hunters and fishers in the far north, and these include elk and reindeer antlers, some of which were obtained by hunting and some by trading with the Sami, and most especially walrus tusks, which were the best available ivory in northern Europe. And so the abundance of these resources made it possible then for Norse merchants to trade abroad and to import silver and gold, which were the most desired, and also other luxury goods such as wine and silk. Now, how was this foreign trade carried on? Overwhelmingly, of course, by sea. So Norse settlements on the coast built and launched cargo ships, which were made from carefully selected, naturally curving and shaped timbers, which were then riveted together. These were sailing ships powered by square sails, also sometimes supplemented by oar ports for human power and for maneuvering in small harbors and inlets. These sailing ships could travel quickly and easily around the Baltic and up the rivers into Eastern Europe, which was the main destination in order to then obtain trade goods coming from the Byzantine Empire, the Middle East, and even the Silk Road. Over the course of the Viking Age, they also increasingly conducted trade to Western Europe as well, including to Britain, France, and Spain. The valuing and exchange of these goods took place mainly at seasonal markets that formed annually in gathering places. There were many of these in Sweden, which were held especially in the later winter when travel was the easiest. But the biggest in Scandinavia may have actually been Kaupang on the southern coast of Norway, just south of what's now known as the Oslo Fjord. Very fine imported goods were traded here, such as glassware and bronze work from all around Europe. How were these exchanges conducted? Well, it seems the main medium of exchange was silver and gold, which could be carried and exchanged in raw nuggets or in small jewels like bands and earrings, which could then be weighed on small portable scales. And over time, informal conventions arose around the regular size and quality of gold rings, which could then be easily counted and exchanged as a kind of unofficial currency or ring money. But gradually, the medium of exchange shifted over to coins. And this started first with the infusions of large loads of coins brought back from abroad, especially the Danegeld, which was being extorted out of England. And from this period, more English coins have actually been found in Scandinavia than in Britain itself. Eventually, some leaders and rulers in Scandinavia began to mint coins of their own, and this started with silver coins in Denmark in the early 800s, but then it became much more common in the late 900s, as peaceful trade abroad between Scandinavia and Christian Europe became more and more common. So over the course of the Viking Age, some of these seasonal market encampments actually developed into permanent towns. 
So towns were very rare in Scandinavia, generally speaking, and they were not very big. The region was overwhelmingly agrarian and thinly populated, not at all urbanized. But there were a few significant commercial towns. The biggest and the most important was Hedeby in Denmark. Hedeby was located on the narrow isthmus connecting Jutland to Germany, and it was located just above the defensive wall, the Danavirka. It had a fortified harbor on the Baltic and earthwork walls protecting it that linked up to the Danavirka. So this was a very natural and obvious place for a trading town because it was the intersection of the land connection connecting Denmark to Germany and the rest of Europe and the sea lanes where it had access to the Baltic to the east and then across just a very narrow portage to the North Sea and the West. So both sea and land trade and travel intersected there. And Hedeby, it seems, grew pretty early on in the Viking Age into a sizable town of over a thousand people, which for that place in time was impressive. And these included many Danish mariners, craftsmen, laborers, as well as foreign merchants, Slavs, Germans, and other foreigners. The next largest and most important town in Scandinavia was Birka in Sweden, which was located on an island in Lake Mälaren, basically in east-central Sweden near Uppsala. And Birka was a similar commercial town, also with a defensive wall and a fortified harbor. It was in this freshwater lake, which nonetheless had a channel connecting it out to the Baltic Sea and hence had access to trade routes across the Baltic and to the east. And it seems that it was a major center of trade and exchange between Scandinavia and Eastern Europe and the trade routes going all the way out into Asia. And one clear marker of this is the Helgo treasure, which was found and excavated on the island of Helga, another nearby island in the same lake, which had various exotic fine goods, including a bishop's staff from Ireland, a bronze ladle from North Africa, and most famously a bronze Buddha statuette that had been made in India. Now, aside from Hedeby and Birka, which were by far the biggest, the most important, the most vibrant, there were a handful of other sizable villages, such as a few in Jutland, which existed from very early times, including Riba and Orhus. And then later, towards the end of the Viking Age, as trade increased, some new commercial towns were founded, such as Skara in Sweden and Trondheim in Norway. Now, in addition to these, there was a smaller town that I've mentioned before that nonetheless was socially and religiously important, which is the religious pilgrimage town of Uppsala in Sweden, just a short ways north of Birka. So these towns existed, you could say, as sort of small islands of urban life amidst a great sea of overwhelmingly agrarian, farming and hunting based life where society was organized again around clans, tribes, and fellowships. Through the Viking Age, all the Scandinavian countries were very decentralized and disunited. Decisions and disputes were worked out on the local level, by local chieftains or by gatherings of the thing. There were, however, a few prominent leaders here and there who claimed a special title, the title of Kunung, 
meaning some sort of ruler, related to the German König and the English King. It seems from some surviving documents, such as the Heimskringla, the chronicle by Snorri Sturluson that I mentioned before, it seems that some of these Kunung leaders claimed divine descent and hence some sort of special cosmic or religious authority. But nonetheless, they had very little concrete governmental power. Most of them through the Viking Age had no royal administration, no trained officials like administrators or tax collectors. They could only use their social prestige or status to try to procure compliance from their putative subjects in the form of tribute or military service or labor on projects like the defensive walls. There also were unclear and inconsistent rules of succession. And when a kunung died, there often were disputes over who would succeed him. And these could be resolved by all sorts of unpredictable processes like negotiation, sometimes joint kingship, where a father and son or two brothers might both claim the title and have to rule cooperatively, sometimes division of the realm into separate territories, and sometimes battle resulting in one or the other contender being killed or fleeing into exile. So while it does appear that there were sort of king-like figures somewhere on the scene through much of the Viking Age, it was a very slow and haphazard process for them to gradually consolidate political power. Over time, it does seem that their power did grow, and there are several likely reasons for this. For one, rulers could use their prestige to lead missions of exploration, trade, and plundering, and bring back the wealth from these undertakings. And then they could distribute that wealth to various followers in order to build up and buy more support, thus creating a sort of continuing cycle of increasing influence and power. Also, the population, it seems, at large, saw certain advantages in political consolidation. Strong rulers could help to protect land and sea routes around Scandinavia and abroad. They could tamp down on the endemic raiding and feuding within their countries and allow for more peaceable trade and prosperity. And as the years went on and as raiding got more and more difficult and less profitable, this option became more appealing of instead having a consolidated realm with limited conflict and greater opportunities for travel and trade. Also, the rise of stronger, more centralized royal kingdoms in the rest of Europe to the south started to make unity and concerted defense seem more necessary. And so, particularly over the course of the 900s, Norse kings started to build up larger courts, receiving diplomats and visitors, built up personal armies, and started to create royal workshops and mints to mint coins and currency. And this process began most of all and earliest in Denmark, which again makes sense because Denmark was the closest and the most exposed to the large European kingdoms, which were threatening to their security and also provided models of centralizing royal administration. So Denmark, through the Viking Age, was repeatedly threatened from the south, and even very early on, as early as the 600s, they were threatened by Saxons and Slavs along the Baltic. Then in the 700s, they were threatened by Charlemagne, who conquered the Saxons and forced them to convert to Christianity and submit to his rule. 
So for all of these reasons, the Danes had to look towards unity and concerted defense, and they undertook projects like the Danavirka along their southern border. Then in the 900s, they were menaced again by the resurgent kingdom of Germany, which was sort of resurrected out of the ashes of the Frankish Empire. And it seems that the Danes responded to this constant repeating threat from the south with a great deal of defiance. And Frankish chronicles from the 800s record that Danish kings, whom they name, including one named Gudfred, who reportedly ruled in the early 800s, resisted this encroachment from the Franks and built up and manned their defenses and resolutely rejected Christian missionaries or the idea of conversion. But after that point, through most of the rest of the 800s and 900s, there's very little reliable information about the kings from within Denmark. Perhaps they had fairly little power in times of peace and were basically just ceremonial figures, only exercising actual power and leadership at moments of external threat. But we do know that eventually powerful kings did emerge who are described in the surviving Norse records. And the earliest of these is Gorm the Old, who ruled in the mid-900s, and he was reportedly the first to unite together a large portion of Denmark, mainly the mainland called Jutland. He was then succeeded by his son called Harold Bluetooth, who succeeded Gorm around 960. And Harold Bluetooth significantly took baptism, and supported the introduction of Christianity into Denmark. He also aggressively extended his power eastward onto the islands of the Baltic and across to the Scandinavian peninsula. So by the time he died, his realm included not only Jutland, but also all the islands to the east and the southern end of what's now Sweden, including the provinces of Skena and Gotland. He also laid claim to some of southern Norway as well, but this seems to have been tenuous and he wasn't able to hold on to it. So he had a very extensive realm, unlike any previous Scandinavian ruler, and he endeavored to secure it with great building projects. So he built roads and bridges, including an enormous half-mile-long timber bridge called Ravening Enga in southern Jutland. He also built a series, a network, you might say, of seven enormous circular earthwork fortresses around his various domains, five of them in what's today Denmark and two in Sweden. And some of these enormous fortresses, which were unlike anything known to have been built before in Scandinavia, some of them are located on sea channels, but also some of them are inland, away from the shore. And this suggests that they were not used in order to control sea lanes or in order to launch expeditions abroad, but more likely they were intended to house troops strategically around the realm in order to control the civilian population and suppress local resistance. Nonetheless, there was, it seems, a series of rebellions of increasing size all through Harold Bluetooth's reign, and the last one was led by his son, called Svein Forkbeard. And Svein defeated Harold, who died in battle, in 986. So Svein Forkbeard took the throne by force, and he rallied the country. He did not, it seems, simply try to suppress and tamp down internal resistance, but he rallied the various elites of the country together 
for a grand project, which was an invasion of England. And he crossed the North Sea in an enormous fleet, successfully landed in England, was proclaimed king by some of the parts and provinces of England, but he was unable to capture London. And he died in this ongoing struggle in England. And after his death, his domains were split. So his elder son, named Harold, took the throne back in Denmark, while his younger son, Knut, claimed the throne of England. And in time, Knut was able to successfully take up rulership in England and then subsequently in Denmark and Norway as well. So for a brief time in the early 1000s, Knut ruled over a massive North Sea empire, including much of Britain, Norway, Denmark, and some of Sweden. But in a sense, this success and the the impressive extent of his realm was deceptive. The crowns in Scandinavia, including Knut's, were still fairly weak, and the rules of succession were still chaotic, and so Knut's domains fell apart soon after his death. But nonetheless, the rise of Knut the Great and his ability to build upon and capitalize upon the reforms and the endeavors of his predecessors, this was still a watershed. So his rise to power in the early 1000s arguably, I would say, marks the beginning of a new era, a new era of increasing royal power and centralization, of increasing involvement in the rest of Europe, both of which were facilitated by the rise of Christianity. So Harold Bluetooth was not the only king in Scandinavia to see Christianity as advantageous, as a way to overcome and paper over regional and tribal differences and to refocus prestige and authority around the towns and around the royal courts. And the rise together of monarchy and Christianity can be seen to mark a turn away from the Viking era and towards integration in Christian civilization. But in order to understand why and how that's true, one has to understand how the Viking raids actually worked and why Norsemen went out on their quests of raiding and plundering. And so that question of the rise and fall of the Vikings I will leave until another lecture. So thank you so much for listening, and if you want to hear my patron-only materials, including my Myth of the Month number 20 on conspiracy theories, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description, and sign up at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.